My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects. Today it is currently 11.30 p.m. and it is New Year's Eve. As I record this episode, we will be rolling into the year 2019 and I hope it is a successful one for you. And that's enough of that. In the last episode, we discussed the creation of the Utah Territory and the placement of Brigham Young and other church leaders to senior government positions. Today we're going to talk about what the church did to ensure their members maintained their spiritual standing in the face of that growth. But to begin, in the late 1860s in London, the streets were a perilous place to be. The Industrial Revolution had brought more workers and horse carts to the city than city planners had ever believed possible. What was the problem with all this growth? Traffic. The London Bridge at the time was known to see up to 27,000 people entering and leaving the city, most by coach. This congestion was a problem. For example, one day a coach broke down and caused a major wagon pileup. As city officials combed through the mess, they found bodies crushed by the wagons. As this was happening more and more, something had to be done. How could they stem the flow of traffic control the speed of the wagons, and ensure that pedestrians weren't crushed in their commute as they entered and exited the city. The result was that in the 1860s, we saw the first ever attempt at the implementation of a traffic light. In 1868, the plans were drawn up. Obviously, the first light looked nothing like what we utilize today. It was a giant pole in the middle of the road with multiple arms, During the day, if the red arms were pointed down on your side of the road, you were allowed to drive through the intersection. If they were up, you were to stop. At night, they would utilize red and green gas lamps operated by a police officer, hence the red and green lights of today. To prepare for this new stoplight, London officials even printed and distributed over 10,000 pamphlets alerting commuters of the impending change. London officials were nervous. Would it work? Most drivers of the day scoffed as they felt that police officers had no authority over how they drove their coach. However, when the first streetlight went live, London officials found that drivers were quite compliant. The light worked wonders to stem the flow of traffic. The streetlight received amazing reviews across London, and people even predicted that lights might even be utilized across other intersections in England. Little did they know that streetlights would eventually cover the entire world. But, like many great ideas, this one was too early for its time. In January of 1869, a leaky pipe caused the streetlight to fill with gas, and when lit, it exploded, killing the operator and frightening the horses of the stagecoaches into wrecks. Though the world's first traffic light had been a resounding success, the streetlight would be abandoned and London would return to its high traffic and congested routes. It would be more than half a century later before London reattempted a streetlight on its busy streets. I shared this story because the world at this time was trying to enter a new phase. With high population growth in major cities, 
Change was inevitable. Sometimes that went really smoothly, but most of the time it was difficult. In the United States in this period, it was proving more difficult. For example, in 1856 and 57, the years of this episode, the United States are on the eve of civil war. If people at this time couldn't even make sense of a traffic light, coming to an agreement on something like slavery and state rights must have looked like a mountain to climb. And so it was in the States. On May 21st of 1856 in Lawrence, Kansas, pro-slavery forces under Sheriff Samuel J. Jones would break in and burn the Free State Hotel and destroy the anti-slavery newspapers and other businesses. Just days after that, followers of the abolitionist John Brown would kill five homesteaders in response. Days later, as Congress discussed and debated these events and how they played into the slavery discussion, Charles Sumner had the Senate floor. As he was giving a speech where he was verbally attacking Southern sympathizers for their pro-slavery violence in Kansas, Congressman Preston Brooks leapt to the floor and attacked him with his cane. Can we imagine such a thing taking place on the floor of the Senate today? Most of us are shocked when the news shows senators raising their voices. It would take a number of years for Sumner to recover from the violent attack, while Brooks would be lionized throughout the southern states. Internal debates on how the country should be run were tearing it apart. All of these events were only clarifying one point. Civil war was on the horizon. For Brigham Young and the church leaders in Utah, though, the themes of internal dissension were all too familiar. If you'll remember, it was apostates that had fueled the fires of hatred in the mobs that tarred and feathered Joseph Smith and drove the church out of Kirtland, Independence, Far West, and eventually Nauvoo. But how would the church leadership unify the members in the face of such circumstances? Today's object are the Reformation questions. So what are the Reformation questions, and how did they come about? In Utah at this time, Brigham Young had the largest ever collection of members of the church spanning the second largest territory in America. Most, in their efforts to cross the plains and survive the early Utah winters on new land, had forgotten many of their religious habits. With all this new land, Utah was also becoming home to many non-Mormons. So, as before, small pockets of apostates began to vocally criticize church leadership. To add to this, in 1856, a terrible drought, the worst the church had ever known, had set in in Utah. Brigham Young felt the church was being punished for its lax approach to their covenants. So, now that the church was isolated, a spiritual cleansing was in order. In 1856, Brigham Young and the leadership kicked off a spiritual reformation. Now, most members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have probably never heard of the Reformation of 1856. So, let's discuss it. This spiritual reformation, the first of its kind within the Church, and the only one that had this big of an impact, took shape through a couple of steps. First, Brigham Young and his second counselor, Jedediah M. Grant, began a fiery speaking circuit among the different colonies around Utah. The purpose of this reformation was to arouse a spirit of repentance among the members, cause them to recommit to their covenants, and in turn, to live more righteous lives. Jedediah Grant really took this work to heart. His sermons became so passionate that members began to call him Mormon Thunder. 
During one phase of this reformation, Jedediah was preaching in Kaysville, Utah. Jedediah and his speaking companion noted that the people had a dark and dull spirit and were quite slow to repent. Joseph Young even suggested that they move on to Farmington. But Brother Grant replied, quote, Do you know how I feel about it? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will never leave this town until the people surrender. Shall we give up and let the wicked and ungodly overcome us? No. In the name and by the power of God, we will overcome them. We will cleanse the inside of the platter and have Israel saved. End quote. The second thing that Brigham and the leadership did was call on ward missionaries and bishops to meet with all the members in their homes. We've now arrived at our object. What were they to say to the members as they met with them in their homes? The leadership, again led by Jedediah Grant, put together and printed a set of 27 questions that were to be asked of all the members across the territory. These were the Reformation questions. So what did the Reformation questions ask? I'm not going to read all the questions word for word, but here's the gist of what was asked. Have you committed murder? Have you betrayed your brethren? Have you taken and made use of property not your own? Have you cut hay where you had no right or turned your animals into another person's field? Have you lied or maliciously misrepresented any person or thing? Have you borrowed anything that may not have returned or been paid for? Have you borne false witness against your neighbor? Have you taken the name of God in vain? Have you coveted anything? Have you been intoxicated with strong drink? Have you lost property and not returned it to the owner? Have you branded an animal that did not belong to you? Have you taken another's horse or mule and rode it without their consent? I bet that would still bother people today. Have you fulfilled promises and paying your debts? Have you taken water to irrigate with when it belonged to another? Do you pay your tithing? Do you teach your family the gospel of salvation? Do you speak against your brethren and against any principle taught by the church? Do you pray in your family morning and night? Do you wash your body as often as circumstances permit? Quick pause. I love that one. No more smelly sacrament meetings. Moving on. Do you attend your ward meetings? Do you preside over your household as a servant of God? Do you oppress the hireling in his wages? And lastly, have you taken up and converted any straight animal not your own? A few of these questions had sub-questions to make it 27. Most of the questions were asked of the members in their homes. But over time, during the two-year Reformation, the bishops began to field most of these questions in private as they found that it really embarrassed the members to do this publicly or in front of their families. Surprise, surprise. You'll notice that despite the grumblings that will come from non-members in the coming years about how people treated each other in Utah, the church leadership was worried that the members were not being Christ-like with their neighbors. They stressed the importance of obeying the law. Now, Lastly, in this Reformation process, Brigham Young suspended the sacrament from all the members. This was to give them an opportunity to repent fully and prepare themselves to recommit to their covenants. So the leadership, the missionaries, and the bishops got to work. Now, what result did these Reformation questions have upon the church members in 1856 and 57? The work of the leadership and ward missionaries among the members was incredible. To recommit the members, the leadership rebaptized all the members of the church in Utah. Just imagine the amount of time that would take. 
Unfortunately, I couldn't find any documents listing out the names of the members, so we don't have exactly how many were rebaptized, but we're led to believe all of them did it. Most of this was done in a baptismal font outside the tabernacle in Salt Lake City. However, many were baptized in local rivers or lakes. Jedediah M. Grant was so passionate about this work that he worked full-time to share it with everyone. Church leaders Orson Hyde, Wilford Woodruff, and Lorenzo Snow felt so moved by Elder Grant's messages that they even offered to give up their church leadership positions as part of this process. Unfortunately, though, Jedediah Grant worked too hard, so hard that he collapsed in November of 1856. According to church records, he'd worked himself to death. He contracted typhoid fever and died within a few days. Just before he died, his wife delivered his last child, a small baby boy named Heber. Heber, J. Grant, would grow to become a future president of the church. Now, in spiritual ways, this Reformation had a tremendous impact among the church in Utah. Journals tell that at this time, so many members began to attend church services on Sundays that they had to begin to turn them away at the doors until new chapels could be built. Wards began to meet at different times on Sundays to accommodate the overflow of members. The Reformation was a success. The members were reinvigorated in their covenants Tithes almost tripled, homes and properties were signed over to the church as with the law of consecration, the Relief Society was restructured and put back into effect, and the number of polygamous couples grew more than any time in church history. But despite all this amazing success, all these fiery preachings had a few minor negative effects, which will grow into massive hurdles. First off, Brigham Young wanted the non-members and apostates out of the Utah Territory. As such, within his sermons, he and the leadership made a number of veiled threats about what could happen to these people if they remained. In the spring of 1857, these non-members and apostates began to leave the territory with stories of threats and even murder. Although the majority of the Reformation questions had to do with just being a good neighbor, things like not stealing, not coveting, lying, or even murdering, the non-members assumed that anyone that died in this period was killed by the church members. It didn't help that among those leaving the territory were the non-Mormon governmental leaders appointed by the President of the United States. Also, in his zeal to drive the members to repent and be rebaptized, Brigham Young hinted at things like a blood atonement, meaning members could pay for their own extremely grievous sins with their own blood. There are no records that this was anything more than another effort by Brigham Young to get the members to take their covenants more seriously. But... That didn't matter to the non-members. The rumors began to swirl. In D.C., questions started popping up. What was happening in Utah? Was Brigham Young creating a theocracy with him on top? Was he forcing all the young women into marriages with older men? Was he openly murdering anyone that disagreed? Again, hard evidence says no, but that didn't matter. Brigham had made the statements and those words with the aggrandized stories were on their way to the President of the United States. After the Reformation, Brigham Young would note that he learned that the members were not to be driven into heaven by the preaching of hellfire, but by increasing their knowledge and understanding until they became one heart and one mind. Now, how do the Reformation questions affect the church today? Though the church will never again go through a Reformation that had as much steam as this one did, 
This reformation lives on yearly and weekly between members of the church and their local clergy. As the sacrament was continued in 1857, focus was put on the recommitment to baptismal covenants as members took the sacrament. Also today, for members to enter into a Mormon temple, they must meet with their local bishop and stake president and positively answer a series of questions to show their commitment to the church and their worthiness. These current questions echo the Reformation questions. Obviously, the emphasis placed on animals and land have dropped, but in their place are questions around being honest in your dealings with your fellow man and how you sustain current leadership. Now, after this Reformation, the process of mass rebaptisms will be discontinued. Going forward, the church will only practice rebaptizing members when they have committed grievous sins and have been excommunicated from the church. Now, where can you see the Reformation questions? All of the original flyers used by ward missionaries have been lost to time. However, their contents still exist. Most journals at this time mention the questions, and the church has laid them out completely in a number of talks and manuals. You can Google them. So in 1857, the Reformation ended, and in Brigham Young's eyes, the members were again in good standing. Unsurprising to church leadership, the drought ended, and the harvest results almost tripled. But the anti-Mormon stories had made it to Washington, and the army was forming to put down this theocracy. We'll discuss that in the next episode. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects, Episode 42, Reformation Questions. Again, as always, if you have questions or comments, please don't hesitate to reach out at joehomc at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you are a friend or a family member and you have not yet subscribed or shared a comment on iTunes, you are an apostate of this podcast. Thanks again for listening.